Hi, I'm Samantha, a past guest on C-Jam's HandyLink. You're listening to HandyLink on C-Jam 99.1 FM, reaching high ground in Windsor, Detroit. Sponsored by the Italian-Canadian Handy Capable Association, an organization that provides recreational and athletic opportunities for individuals with disabilities in Windsor-Essex. For more information, check out ICHA on Facebook. I'm your host, Cam Wells. The first segment of our show is a post-dated one, so some of the events referred to may already have happened. In this segment of our show... Jennifer Robbins will be giving us the latest about the Canadian Helen Keller Center. So it's been about a year since the last time uh, I had you on. Can you give me an update on uh, what's been happening with the center? Uh, well, I think, you know, we've been, we've been plowing our way through COVID over the last year. Um, you know, I think it's taken a while for for everybody to kind of um, find their way through this um, one way or another. It's been difficult for us because um, in our field, there, it's very difficult to social distance. Um, wearing masks is difficult for some of our consumers who need to maybe read people's lips or see people's facial expressions. So, you know, we've been trying different things to mitigate those issues um, from uh, plastic masks uh, to face shields to, um, you know, pretty much everything that we can. But um, we've done well. We haven't had any cases of COVID um, amongst our staff or our client base. So that's um, something that we're very um, pleased and proud about. Um, that we've been able to maintain everybody's health and safety throughout the pandemic um, is key. And I think, you know, um, majority of our staff have been vaccinated and have had both their shots as well as um, our clients. So those who might not be as familiar with the work of the Helen Keller Center, can you tell me a little bit about your programs and services? Sure. We, um, we offer intervener services, which is uh, basically a sighted guide and someone to facilitate communication with our deafblind uh, consumers out in the community. So um, basically, you know, things like shopping and banking, um, social, recreational activities, although there hasn't been a lot of that in the last year. Um, 
but you know maintaining their abilities to get out and do their essential things like their essential shopping and their essential medical appointments and things like that um we also have uh some training programs so we offer training um in um, life skills so um, skills that enable our consumers to be independent um and again that's those uh training programs have been on hold uh, we had to move to a virtual platform so we've been doing a lot of virtual uh, programming with our training center as well as virtual social activities and kind of bringing people together um, using zoom and, and platforms like that so uh, it's taken a little while for everybody to kind of move, get used to that move to a more virtual platform but i think everybody seems to be much more comfortable now and has enabled us to reach uh, people kind of outside of our regular reach We've been able to reach more people throughout the province using um, virtual platforms. So that's been a benefit for sure for us. So when people hear the term deafblind, they automatically tend to jump to this conclusion that it means complete loss of vision and complete loss of hearing. Is that uh, just a myth or is, is that something you encounter in your work? Yeah, it is a myth. Um, you know, people who are blind um, aren't all necessarily totally blind. Um, visual impairment, impairments come in uh, many forms. Um, and then same with hearing loss. It's not always necessarily that you're completely deaf, but um, you may be um, hard of hearing. So it's really the combination of the two and how that um, affects each individual individually. Each person has um, very unique individual um, needs for sure based on their vision and hearing loss and the degree thereof. So, um, and how in combination those two work together um, in terms of what types of supports people need. So, uh, you know, some people can be totally deaf and totally blind and be very independent, and some people can have some vision and some hearing and need some added support. So it really just depends on the individual and how their vision, their combined vision and hearing loss affects that person. So a lot of people would probably assume that that is uh, a huge undertaking, finding the right way of reaching someone who is totally blind and totally deaf. How do you go about uh, tailoring what you offer to someone in those circumstances? Um, well, for example, uh, you know, you might have somebody who grew up in the deaf community um, who has now had some vision loss, and um, some, some of our individuals have what's called Usher syndrome. So it's a combination of deafness and um, retinitis pigmentosa which is basically tunnel vision and it's progressive so that, um, you know, throughout the person's lifetime that the vision deteriorates. Um, and so therefore you may have, uh, you may have um, to alter your sign language um, that you may have used to communicate with this person to um, more of a tactile sign language so that, a hand over hand so the person is feeling the signs 
Um, or you may have to move to a tactile alphabet, which is done on the hand um, for communication. So I'm guessing in cases where it's from birth, that presents uh, an additional sort of challenge. Yes, from birth it does. Um, we traditionally don't support uh, deafblind individuals from birth, um, or those that have um, been deafblind from birth, but yes, it can present many other challenges, um, you know, starting with communication, because um, for the individuals that we serve, we have... Um, uh, we, they have uh, acquired the disability throughout their lifetime, so they've learned a language um, and uh, some form of communication. So, in your time with the Center, is there any success story that stands out for you, where you've provided support in a particularly meaningful way? Um, absolutely. We have um, many individuals who have gone on to um, attend college programs, university programs, and graduated from those programs with our support. Um, we've also had, um, you know, we have one individual who we've supported for many years um, using intervener services um, who is now employed by Canadian Helen Keller Centre as our community relations coordinator um, and is actively involved in the community, bringing the deafblind community together and to CHKC. So, um, you know, I think we've, you know, we've definitely supported people through employment and um, obtaining employment. Uh, so lots of success stories for sure. So. What message would you send to the community about the need for programs and services like this to give the deafblind population an equal footing? I think it's an absolute essential service. Um, we certainly have learned that through COVID. Um, and uh, I think that um, just to know that there are deafblind people out there in your community and um, you know, it's, it's, some people think it's, you know, it's hard to believe that there's people like Helen Keller out there in the, in the communities. I'd like to thank you for taking the time out to do this, but if you can stay on the line for a sec, that'd be great. Sure, no problem. In this segment of our show, David Page will be telling us a little bit about the Hemophilia Society. So, can you tell me a little bit about the Hemophilia Society? The Canadian Hemophilia Society was founded way back in 1953. And what's interesting about it is that it, is that it was founded by, uh, by a physician and uh, a patient with, with hemophilia. So it's had that, um, you know, that good collaboration between physicians and patients ever, ever since. And it was founded really to... Uh, to improve the, the quality of life for people with, with hemophilia, which way back then really had very little or, or, or no treatment at all. Uh, and, and hemophilia back then was probably a fatal disease by, by about the age of 20. So things have come a long way since then. So for those who might not be as familiar with hemophilia as a condition, can you tell me a little about it? Hemophilia is, is, is really characterized by bleeding, internal bleeding, into the joints, and mainly into the 
into the uh, uh, knees, uh, ankles, and elbows. External bleeding is, unless it's really severe, it's not, it's not that much of a problem. So, you know, contrary to the myth that people with hemophilia you know, bleed profusely from cuts, it's really the internal bleeding into those joints that causes the, uh, the problems. And over, over the long term, uh, it uh, creates uh, uh, joint disease and, and people become uh, uh, almost crippled uh, and then sometimes really crippled from, from, uh, from, from that joint bleeding unless, unless they get good treatment. So, can you give me an overview of some of the services and programs the Society offers? Well, the Canadian Hemophilia Society is, is first and foremost, I think, a patient advocacy organization. Uh, and, uh, and we advocate for um, uh, you know, the best care possible, whether that's uh, access to uh, you know, innovative medicines uh, or um, you know, quality, uh, uh, quality care in, in, in the network of, of treatment centers uh, across Canada. So we really try to work with the healthcare professionals and, and with governments to, uh, to promote that uh, access to, to care uh, and, and, and to promote uh, um, you know, new medicines as they become available. So I'd imagine some of the myths surrounding hemophilia do create some challenges in advocacy. Well, one of the myths is that it's a royal, the royal disease, and, and, and it was very prevalent in, in, in four of the European royal families, the, the British, uh, the, the, the Russian, uh, the German, and, and the Spanish. But uh, many people are not uh, descended from, from royalty. Um, another myth is that, that people bleed profusely from, from minor cuts, and that's absolutely not true. Uh, it's, it's the internal injuries, which are, which are often um, um, uh, impossible to see. They're invisible. And so people uh, uh, don't realize that uh, the people with hemophilia are having you know, severe issues and, and, and great pain when you can't see anything on, on the outside. The other thing is that uh, hemophilia is, comes and goes. Uh, when people are not suffering a, a hemorrhage in those joints, they're pretty well normal. And then suddenly they can be uh, hit by, by, a, by a bleed, uh, unable to walk, unable to work, unable to go to school, and that could last four or five days. Uh, and, then, and then they return back to normal. So people find it somewhat strange that they you know, have this, uh, this, these, these episodes that come and go. So do you know offhand about how many people are affected by hemophilia? There are two types of, of, of hemophilia, hemophilia A and B. Uh, a is the most common, and it affects about 3,000 people in Canada, about one in, in, in 10,000 male births. Uh, and hemophilia B is, is, is less common, about 600 uh, people in Canada, or about one in, in 50,000 male births. There are, there are also a number of other um, related disorders, which aren't really called hemophilia A or B, but are also bleeding disorders. Von Willebrand disease is probably the most common, and that's, that is quite common, though less severe in most cases. And there are a number of other factor deficiencies and function disorders that are characterized by bleeding as well. So it's really a family of about, uh, about 30 different bleeding disorders that, that our society works, works for. So in your time with the society, what's been the greatest success you've experienced? Well, our greatest success was really, uh, I think, a, a response to the, to the greatest challenge, and, and that was HIV and infection in, through the blood system. Through, through factor products, 
back in the 1970s and early 80s. And we had to react to that by, number one, educating our, our membership, uh, number two, um, working for and, and succeeding in getting financial compensation for those people who were, who were affected, and number three, working to, uh, to, to create a, a safer blood system for all Canadians. Uh, and, and we achieved that you know, uh, with, really with the help of, of the Royal Commission of Inquiry into the blood system in, in Canada called the Creamer Commission, which, which uh, sat between 1993 and 1997. And its recommendations really become a blueprint for safe blood systems around the world. So, at the time uh, this was being achieved, what were some of the challenges pertaining to HIV and blood disorders? What were some of the, the key variables in there? Back in the, in the early 80s, uh, HIV was a, was, was a taboo. Uh, people uh, were not uh, uh, happy to talk about it. Uh, people suffered discrimination, whether they were, whether they were gay or, or people with hemophilia or, or uh, other groups that were targeted. Uh, and so it was, it, was, it was very difficult to, to, to get the issue out into the open. Moreover, um, governments were not, were not recognizing the impact that it had through the blood system. And so we had to fight to get that, that recognition, um, the compensation, and, and the, the, the willingness to, to, uh, to sit down and look at what went wrong and to change the system. So what do you foresee for the future the work of society? Well, the future is, is, is really quite exciting. Um, in the last, just in the last five years, a number of new um, treatments have, have come along. Uh, uh, they're, they're both very safe and, and, and much more effective treatments. Um, not just factor concentrates, but uh, monoclonal antibodies, which don't require uh, IV infusion. They require a, a subcutaneous injection. Much, much, much easier uh, for patients, um, and 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 gene therapy is in clinical trials, and, and you know gene therapy, which is a you know one simple injection, which is you know hope, hopefully will last for five, ten years, maybe even longer, that should be on the market within uh, two or three years. So there's 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 huge promise. Um, you know all of these things will uh, will mean that uh, young people growing up today won't have the same. Uh, serious joint damage that the older people have had. Uh, they'll be able to, uh, to, to work, work normally, uh, you know, get educations, raise families without any of the pain and, and suffering that, uh, that the older people have, have had to go through when treatment was not as good. I'd like to thank you for taking the time out to do this, but if you can stay on the line for a sec, that'd be great. Sure. Handy Link will be right back after these commercial messages, so stay tuned. So you're hanging with your inner circle. Maybe you're making cocktails. Maybe you're packing bowls. Even while we're distancing, it's important to remember, alcohol and cannabis each mess with your driving skills. Be cool. Make sure you and your friends get home safe. Take a cab if you need to. A few bucks could save a life. And we can do it again next weekend. A message from Arrive Alive, Drive Sober.
Welcome back to HandyLink, sponsored by the Italian-Canadian Handy Capable Association, an organization that provides recreational and athletic opportunities for individuals with disabilities in Windsor-Essex. For more information, check out ICHA on Facebook. I'm your host, Cam Wells. Earlier in our show, David Page told us a little bit about hemophilia. And Jennifer Robbins gave us an update on the work of the Helen Keller Center. In this segment of our show, Arthur Aston will be telling us a little bit about Bill Jake's Place. So, can you tell me a little bit about Bill Jake's Place? Okay, so Bill Jake's Place is a nonprofit organization in New Jersey, and we create uh, inclusive play experiences. Uh, Primarily, we uh, build inclusive playgrounds, but we also manage and operate the Camden County New Jersey Miracle League, which is a baseball league for children and adults who have disabilities. So, um, Jake's Place, we have two uh, inclusive playgrounds already built in New Jersey. And then, uh, back in 2018, we had Jake's Laws passed in the state of New Jersey, where that will require every county in the state to have at least one inclusive playground. And we are collaborating with seven uh, townships in our state to uh, build inclusive playgrounds now. So, in that sense, uh, what all is included accessibility-wise in an inclusive playground? So for our playgrounds, the primary um, inclusive uh, feature is that we have a non-latex rubberized surfacing. It's called poured in place. It's literally poured into uh, the ground and it's uh, a non-latex rubber, but it has a little bit of a bounce to it. So that allows for people with mobility devices like wheelchairs and crutches to um, access all parts of the playground. We also have ramps that take you from the lowest to the highest point on the playground structure. And, um, certain features like the uh, transfer from, if you were to transfer from a wheelchair to the sliding board on the playground, that is uh, designed to make it more uh, more accessible for wheelchair users to, to use the slides. The uh, swing sets are, uh, some of the seats are like a, a reclining bucket seat that have a harness that uh, can be attached to the swing uh, for people who have um, motor issues where they, um, you know, may need to lean back or may uh, be able to be harnessed into a, uh, into a swing so they don't fall out. Um, we have a lot of, um, a, a lot of things that, that hit the different um, sensory um, and sensory motor skills, like um, it's called a sway fund, so it rocks back and forth like a boat. Um, we have that, and that's also wheelchair accessible. Wheelchair can um, fit on it, and there's a table on that uh, piece of equipment that will allow a person in a wheelchair to rock the uh, apparatus back and forth. So, um, you know, a lot of our pieces are um, very intentional for what they, uh, for, for different uh, people with different types of disabilities. So, in terms of the Miracle League, how do you go about reaching out to the disability population to let them know about your work? So we have, um, in the county that we're in, in Camden County, they actually have a, um, a, a 
person who is responsible for programming for people with disabilities in the county, and the Camden County Freeholders actually are the lead sponsor for the league every year. Uh, so they are very helpful with getting the information out to people. We reach out to uh, schools that serve uh, students with disabilities, and just, um, you know, every school district uh, we make aware of our um, of our program with the baseball league, so that they can uh, tell their students who may have disabilities uh, about the baseball league. We also reach out to uh, local hospitals, uh, Children's Hospital in Philadelphia is not too far from here, so they have us on their website for uh, recreational activities uh, for the local area, and then uh, just word of mouth. We started uh, with fifteen players, I believe, and now we have. Uh, over 80 players that register every season to play with us. So we have, um, you know, we've really grown in the last uh, six years since, uh, since we've started. So in your time with this work, what's been the greatest success moment? For me, um, I was born with a disability called spina bifida. So for me, just to uh, be a part of something like Bill Jake's place where we are literally changing uh, the way that people play through the playgrounds that we uh, create. That has been something really um, big for me because when I was born in 1981, they didn't have accessible playgrounds. So to know that we are um, helping to change that now for, for this generation and generations to come uh, is, has been really big for me. And then the same thing with the baseball league. Uh, I can remember having, you know, very limited options of uh, things that were available for me as a person with a disability. So to know that an organization like the Miracle League, which is a uh, a national organization, and there are over 200 leagues in the uh, United States. Uh, so to know that, that we are playing a small part in that and bringing uh, accessible and adaptive baseball to uh, the population of, of people with disabilities in just our small county in the state of New Jersey. Uh, it all has been very uh, rewarding for me and very um, very exciting to, uh, to be a part of. So what are some of the adaptations in Miracle League play as opposed to the able-bodied version of the sport? So the one thing uh, that will stand out if you were to come to one of the uh, baseball games is that every player is matched with a volunteer uh, who does not have a disability. We call them buddies. So, um, and that, that's the, I think that's the big thing of inclusion where we literally include everybody. The players have disabilities, the volunteers do not. Um, but yet we all play, they all play together. So uh, that's, that's the really big thing. And it's really uh, the, the responsibility of the buddy is to assist the player, but also give the player the freedom and um, the autonomy to do uh, what they're able to do. So we have some players who can really hit a ball and can really run around the bases pretty fast. Uh, you know, they can go and try to catch the ball or, or run after the ball if it's hit into the outfield. So the job of the buddy is to, um, you know, just guide them along and, you know, help them where they need help, but then also at the same time, uh, give them that independence to, um, 
you know, to, to do what they can. And that's pretty much the, the biggest difference is that you'll see every player is matched with a buddy. Um, we don't, our, our league specifically, uh, we don't keep score every, we say every game ends in a tie. Um, again, we have players of different abilities, so we actually have players that hit home runs where, you know, goes over the fence and into the woods. Uh, but every, you know, every person gets a chance to bat and uh, every game ends in a tie. I would say those are the biggest things that are, um, you know, the differences that you would see in our uh, league versus, you know, something like the Little League or something like that. Like, thank you for taking the time out to do this, but if you can stay on the line for a sec, that'd be great. Okay. My friends, I love stories about accessible outdoor facilities for children with disabilities. Fact is, full inclusion in society doesn't just happen in your adulthood. It's not just you're magically included. Something must be learned as children grow and progress and find their place in society. But the more they're included and able to participate, the stronger their sense of self-worth, their understanding, true equality will be as the years pass. Fact is, creating that, you're creating chance for anyone to grow up, to recognize their own abilities, and to be strong self-advocate, to be a role model within the disability community, and that betters us all. This has been HandyLink. I'm your host, Cam Wells, reminding you we're all equal, so get on out there and have yourselves a good one. Something tells me you've earned it, folks. We'll see you next week.